If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at the end of chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15. The text is also printed there on the next page of the bulletin for you to follow along. Uh, So we're talking about religious hypocrisy today. Uh, That's a big problem for human beings. It's probably the biggest problem that's highlighted in the Gospels. Throughout the Gospels, I I think you could say no bigger bigger problem is highlighted uh, than religious hypocrisy. Uh, Hypocrites fool themselves into believing, uh, especially religious hypocrites, fool themselves into believing that they're close with God, they're, they're tight with God. When in reality... In their hearts, they are far from God. Um, Christianity, the Christian faith, is antithetical to religious hypocrisy. It's it's antithetical to it. Jesus is opposed to it. Uh, As religions go, Christianity, uh, properly understood or believed, I guess you could say, Christianity is the only true alternative to religious hypocrisy. Uh, Sadly, a lot of people equate the two, right? They equate Christianity with religious hypocrisy. A lot of people want to have nothing to do with the church, want to have nothing to do with organized religion, they'll say, uh, because of their experience of self-righteous hypocrites in the church. Uh, These people who have chosen to stay away from the church see it uh, largely as a place where bad people pretend to be good. Uh, And people who use their false piety to uh, condemn other people, to exclude other people. Uh, There are a lot of people who would say that they've personally been hurt by religious hypocrites and therefore seek to avoid further pain by simply walking away, leaving the church entirely. And that's sad because the church is supposed to be the place where we hear about Jesus as the solution to the problem of religious hypocrisy, where people are delivered from the delusion of self-righteousness and truly saved for a real relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. God's grace to us in Jesus sets us free from the problem of religious hypocrisy, and we get to live in that freedom together in Christ. That's the good news. And this is exactly the stuff that we'll hear about in our passage this morning. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, please help us to find our life with you in Christ, not in ourselves, as we consider your word together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. They're crossing over the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and the disciples. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So the main bulk of this passage is about religious hypocrisy there from chapter 15, 1 through 9. So uh, let's dive into that and explore what's going on there. The Pharisees and the scribes are the religious professionals. They're religious experts. And we've already seen them in Matthew's gospel uh, in, in conflict with Jesus quite a bit to this point. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 12, these are the guys who challenged Jesus because his disciples were plucking heads of grain to eat on the Sabbath. So they couldn't criticize Jesus himself, couldn't find anything to criticize about him, so they complained about his followers, his disciples, who were supposed to be learning from him. And the implication is that then Jesus himself uh, is the one who stands accused as the one who's responsible for the sins of his disciples. And a lot of people do that, uh, complaining about the church as a way to justify actually their resistance to Jesus. What they really don't like is Jesus. Uh, can't find anything wrong with him, so we'll complain about his church. <laughs> complain about the disciples. In Matthew 12, <clears throat> the, the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of breaking God's law, plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. That's breaking God's law. They were, they were getting on them about breaking God's law. Here, that's not what they're doing. Here, they accuse the disciples of breaking the tradition of the elders. That's what it says in verse 2. <clears throat> because the disciples are failing to wash their hands when they eat. And again, the implication is that Jesus is bad because his disciples are bad. They're doing it wrong. So the religious professionals, uh, they weren't complaining about the disciples' hygiene. That's not what it means. Um, They're not washing their hands when they eat. Uh, They were condemning the disciples for not observing ceremonial rituals that were established through their traditions. So more than something done to prevent the spread of disease... uh, Washing their hands was a religious tradition. They were, they were thinking in terms of spiritual cleanliness as they ate. <clears throat> they weren't referring to God's commandments. They were speaking specifically about a merely human tradition. They said it themselves. So Jesus will come back to the actual subject of hand washing and cleanness. And uh, we'll look at that next week in the following passage, starting in verse 10. Jesus comes back to that. That, that complaint in particular, though, um, gives him the opportunity to say something important about uh, true defilement and true cleansing. But first, Jesus wants to address what's really going on here when the, uh, you know, what the religious people are really doing by condemning his disciples for failing to observe this tradition. So that's what he wants to talk about first. Very simply, they have made up their own standard of piety their own rules, their own religious rituals or commandments or whatever you want to call it. And they've said, if we keep these good standards, then we are good people. These are good standards that we've made up. We're good people close to God if we keep them. So they use the traditions that they have invented to pretend that they are righteous while excluding others who have failed to keep those traditions, those standards. But in doing that, 
Jesus is saying they've actually rejected God. They've actually rejected his commandments, his word. They're doing then what is evil, but they're proclaiming it as divine goodness. They're being bad, but saying that they're good. That's hypocrisy. As Jesus exposes this reality, uh, he gives this example of their tradition. And uh, you see it there in verse 3. Uh, and following. It's, it's a tradition called korban. Uh, so the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? He asks them, why do you break the commandments of God? For the sake of your tradition. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, <clears throat> if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me, is given to God, that's in Mark 7, that's Korban, this, this uh, tradition, then he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You've refused to honor your father and your mother in order to keep this tradition, right? So, <clears throat> so it was a rabbinic rule, not a biblical commandment, but a tradition of men where someone with wealth or with property would vow that to, to God, which seems like a great thing to do, you know, vowing Offering, you know, uh, promising, devoting, dedicating something to God. And what that meant was you could enjoy your wealth or your property while you lived, but that when you died, it, would, it was designated to go to the temple treasury. And it also meant that other people, like certain family members, uh, would never have access to that wealth or property to benefit from it, not not even now while you're still alive and, and not after you die. It goes to the temple treasury. So it's like saying, hey, <clears throat> I know you need help, mom and dad. Uh, my money's going to God. Sorry, not going to help. Can't help. And it ends up being um, an apparently pious way, real nice way to spite others. It's spiting others while feigning piety. True piety would have been helping father and mother, as, according to God's law, honoring them. Jesus exposes this as it's an apparently religious rule that in reality allows you to break God's law. Actually, to make God's law illegal, that's what, it, that's what he says. To, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. <clears throat> so those who have dedicated their wealth as korban have actually made it impossible to keep God's word without breaking that tradition, without breaking the Korban vows that they've made. And they're more committed to that, right? So God commanded them to love and honor their parents, and God has always intended that his word would determine our lives in every way, that his word would determine our relationship with him and therefore our relationship with each other as people who are made in God's image. But in order for them to keep his word, they'd have to break their human tradition, which, of course, <clears throat> they were unwilling to do because they'd set up that tradition as a way to avoid keeping God's word in the first place. That's why you set up traditions like that. They were passing themselves off as good, compliant people with standards that they could keep. But at root, they were lawbreakers violating God's word, making God's word illegal. They had instituted their religious tradition so they could pretend to be devout and pious while actually, in reality, saying no to God and to his word. So Jesus calls them hypocrites, <clears throat> which is uh, 
It's a stage play term. It's a theatrical term for an actor, someone who is insincere, someone who's faking it. Now, they would claim that uh, they were being holy, but God sees the truth in their hearts. And so Jesus uh, quotes from Isaiah uh, 29, I think. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So I had to take some time to explain the Korban tradition uh, because it's pretty foreign to us being so far removed from that culturally and historically. So let's have some examples of how we might make God's word illegal for the sake of our traditions. This might be painful, so uh, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. (laughs) There are uh, certain religious professionals who make their whole ministry about something they might call biblical masculinity. And they build a church culture around it. As if it were a human tradition that that everybody's going to observe. And they will say, what the church needs, what the world needs, what we all need right now is good Christian men. So we got to train men to be men. And by that, they mean, we'll proceed to define masculinity in terms of things like physical strength, being able to lift heavy weights or win fights, in terms of financial success, having your own company, you know, making money, supporting your family. Or in terms of your sex life, how good that is with your wife and how many children you have. That's what real men do. Things like that. And they'll say that this definition should apply to all men or else they'll be weak, they'll be losers, they'll be sissies. Never mind that you don't find that definition of masculinity in the scriptures. Never mind that Jesus was a man. And his masculinity was not at all defined in any of these terms. Being a good Christian man for these religious professionals means being tough, full of testosterone, letting that find its its expression, right? And we should question the faithfulness of anyone not masculine in these ways. They feel real good about themselves. And they put others down. It's what they end up doing. They look to mock and defeat their opponents, their enemies. And they treat faithful brothers and faithful ministers as enemies to be mocked. All for some ideas that they imagined up that they pretend makes them closer to God. Not everyone who's strong, not everyone who's successful financially, not everyone who has lots of kids uh, is necessarily a religious hypocrite because those things are fine things. But making those things a matter of religion on which you build your sense of righteousness and say, I'm close with God, I'm tight with God because of these things, Jesus is going to take issue with that. Here's another one. There are certain religious professionals who teach that Faithful Christians will send their kids to religious schools where they'll be safe from the evil influences of the world. And if you don't send your kids to a religious school or homeschool them, 
then it's not just your intelligence that's called into question, it's your faithfulness that's called into question. They see it as an essential aspect of the Christian life, so much so that they will bend the whole life of the church around this issue and create a culture around this issue. Never mind that the question of how to educate your children is a cultural luxury that um, not everyone has options. Never mind that the Bible has nothing whatsoever to say about our modern conception of school and education. Being a good Christian parent for certain religious professionals means this is not just a matter of personal opinion or preference or conscience. It is impossible to be faithful to God otherwise. And those who, you know, do the right thing, they're the insiders. And those who fail to do the right thing are the outsiders, and they feel themselves to be made outsiders. Not everyone who homeschools, not everyone who sends their kids to religious schools is necessarily a religious hypocrite. Those are fine things, obviously. But making those things a litmus test of your relationship to God, saying, I'm close to God, I'm tight with God because of that. Jesus is going to take issue with that. <clears throat> religious hypocrites want to be righteous, and they come up with their own ideas of what that means, things that they can do, that they can actually succeed at, that they can actually fulfill, standards that are achievable for them, whether it's things like hand-washing, the Korban tradition, or masculinity, or schooling, or whatever. They've established these human traditions to feel close to God. And we all have things that we would like to define our relationship with God. Things about us that we would like to define our relationship with God, rather than allowing Him to define our relationship through His Word. Uh, these things, they let us feel good about ourselves, especially in comparison over and against other people who are not defined by the same things. So, <clears throat> so the Pharisees and the scribes, they attack the disciples for failing to meet their standards. That's what religious hypocrites do, because it feels good to attack others. It bolsters your sense of righteousness. But Jesus would expose that actually, that's the opposite of righteousness. Self-righteousness is antithetical to true righteousness. It's antithetical to God's word. So what's the solution? What's the alternative? One of the surprising and wonderful things about Christianity is that the solution to religious hypocrisy is not you just be genuine yourself. It's not trying really hard to genuinely keep God's commandments, actually. We're sinners. That's not going to be a possibility for us. That's why we make up easier rules to follow and fulfill. <clears throat> That's not what Jesus is proposing. You don't find that anywhere in his language here. The, the alternative to our religious hypocrisy, the solution for the problem of our self-righteousness is in forsaking our self-justification project altogether. We are called to stop trying to define our relationship with God based on our own ideas, our own efforts, based on anything you're going to find right here. 
We are called to submit to his word by faith as he defines our relationship with himself. We're called to give up on whatever version of our our own righteousness we thought made us good or safe or holy or close to God, tight with God. We are presented with the true righteousness of another And it is his righteousness alone that saves us from self-righteousness. And this is where that strange little comment from the end of Matthew 14 comes in. That little little paragraph that we sort of skipped over so far to this point. It says in verse 36, All who were sick came and implored Jesus that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. So it might seem <clears throat> like these people are just being superstitious. You know, if I can just touch this, then some kind of power will come through. And, you know, um, but no, Jesus uh, was really healing these people. Jesus was healing these people. And he was apparently okay with the whole fringe of his garment mechanism, if you, if you will. It might seem like it's a completely unrelated and separate story, uh, but only if you, you know, sort of pay too much attention to that arbitrary chapter division. Um, So what's really going on here? First of all, when it says that the sick were being made well or being healed uh, as they touched the fringe of his garment, that word for made well, that's also the same word for being saved. The sick were being saved. Throughout the gospel, uh, healings, You know, healing of illnesses is analogous to salvation, which is indicated in that very same word being used for both things. So they're they're coming to Jesus, sick people, people have stuff wrong with them. They're being saved from whatever has gone wrong with them. What has gone wrong with us? How they're being saved is really what ties this together with the whole idea of salvation from religious hypocrisy. They're being saved by touching the fringe of his garment. So the Greek word uh, kraspadon, which is translated fringe here in the ESV, uh, I think probably should have been translated tassel. Uh, That's a legitimate translation for it. In our Old Testament reading, uh, which Sarah read from Numbers 15, Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments. And the Greek translation of that old Hebrew, Old Testament, um, the word they use to translate tassel is kraspidon. It's the same one we find in our passage. So the sick here in our passage are being saved by touching the tassel of Christ's garment. And that's a very specific thing that Matthew is pointing out. What does it mean? What's the significance of the tassel? Well, in Numbers 15, Yahweh tells us, it'll be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh. To do them, to follow after your own, uh, not to follow after your own heart, but to do, so you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So God says that his word should define our relationship. God told his people to wear tassels so they remember his word defines our relationship. It would remind them of God's word to keep it and to do it rather than following after their own hearts. 
Again, the problem is we're sinners. We're never going to do any of that. <clears throat> so putting on your own tassels, that's not the solution, right? Uh, God's people, Christ's people have done away with tassels. Trying to keep God's commandments to make us right with God. It won't actually save you from the problem of religious hypocrisy. We're sick. We're sick with self-righteousness. And we need to be saved. We need to touch the tassels of his garment. We need Jesus to remember the commandments of God. We need Jesus to keep and do all of God's law for us. We need the incarnate word of God himself to define our relationship with God. So we can't literally physically touch the tassels on Jesus' garment. That's okay. This was always meant to be just a picture of the true spiritual reality. Jesus' embodiment of the word of God, Jesus' keeping of God's commandments, Jesus' true obedience and perfect righteousness on our behalf is the only way to heal what's gone wrong with us in our relationship with God. It is the only salvation. It's the only solution. Justification by faith in Jesus Christ is the only alternative to our hypocritical self-justification project. Either we seek to, to redefine the terms of our relationship with God so that we can pretend we can meet the standards that we set and, and therefore tight with God, or we embrace Jesus as our substitute who defines that relationship for us. So it's not in our tassels. It's not in our devotion to God's word. It's not in our devotion to, to Jesus. It's in his devotion to God, his love for the Father, a salvation that's represented by this fringe, the tassel of his garment, saving us and healing us. So through his life of perfect obedience, Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness, truly, and he covers our shame with it, as with a garment. Jesus is the only one who is right with God through his own obedience, and he has shared this rightness. He has imputed this righteousness to us as a free gift of his grace. Uh, some people say there seems to be a really sharp distinction between the kind of salvation that we see in the Gospels and the kind of salvation, that, you know, the way the apostles talk later about it in their, in their epistles, their letters, with all these technical terms, justification by faith, right? That mechanism. But that's exactly what we have here. Salvation through faith in the perfect obedience of Jesus. That's what the fringe of his garment, that's what the tassels of his garment symbolizes in his life and ministry here. <clears throat> his keeping God's commandments, that's our salvation. His life counts for us. It's either that or you've got to make your own life count for yourself. You have to struggle and you will fail. Then maybe you're going to pretend that it actually worked. But this is the salvation Jesus offers. By his grace, he presents himself to us as the only true solution for our hypocrisy. The only true solution for our failure to keep God's commandments. Actually, for our rejection of God's word. We have rejected God's word. We've broken God's word. But God's word incarnate has come and restored our life with God. Do you see how finding your righteousness outside yourself how finding your true righteousness in Jesus Christ alone, 
how touching the fringe of his garment, so to speak, how that saves you from your own hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when you fake being good. What use do Christians have for, to fake being good? God tells us that he fully accepts Christ's perfect righteousness on our behalf. Just as if we actually had been good. We don't need to find goodness within ourselves. We don't need to put on a theatrical show of our own goodness. We don't confess our own righteousness. We confess our sin. And we confess faith in Jesus' righteousness. That's only hard to do if you still love your own righteousness, if you're still desperate to pretend that you can determine your own relationship with God. But why would you do that when Jesus' relationship with God is open to you? When the relationship of the perfect, holy, beloved Son of God is yours by grace, there for the asking. You've got to tell your friends who don't want to go to church for the hypocrites. Jesus is an alternative. He's an amazing alternative that frees us from hypocrisy. We don't need to make up our own rules and standards and traditions to try to be right with God because of who we are. Jesus' vicarious salvation frees us from all that. So what if some religious professional, some hypocrite, accuses you and condemns you, makes you feel bad for failing to live up to their ideas of what it means to be faithful? We already knew we'd failed not just to keep human traditions, to keep God's word. We already knew that, let alone their moral codes. So in Christ, God has declared us righteous according to his gracious word in spite of all our sin and rebellion against him. If the Lord Jesus is our advocate with God, religious hypocrites can't hurt us and we don't need to be them. There's a real freedom in the gospel that many people need to hear. And if you know this freedom through your relationship with Jesus, you could tell them about it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, where we have been hypocrites, we pray that you would not only show us or expose it in us, but set us free to confess it. Lord Jesus. Your love, your gift of righteousness is far better. It's far more reassuring than our own pretended righteousness. So we thank you for the true security we have in your relationship with God, your keeping God's commandments on our behalf. Help us to learn to live always believing in your gracious justification of us. May that change our lives now and forever. We pray in your name. Amen.